Part Four of *The Intrusion of Jimmy* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Intrusion of Jimmy*, Chapter Ten. Jimmy adopts a lame dog. A black figure detached itself from the blacker shadows and shuffled stealthily to where Jimmy stood on the doorstep. "'That you, Spike?' asked Jimmy. "'That's right, boss. Come on in.' He led the way up to his rooms, switched on the electric light, and shut the door. Spike stood blinking at the sudden glare. He twirled his battered hat in his hands. His red hair shone fiercely. Jimmy inspected him out of the corner of his eye and came to the conclusion that the Mullins' finances must be at a low ebb. Spike's costume differed in several important details from that of the ordinary well-groomed man about town. There was nothing of the flaneur about the Bowery boy. His hat was of the soft black felt fashionable on the east side of New York. It was in poor condition and looked as if it had been up too late the night before. A black tailcoat, burst at the elbows and stained with mud, was tightly buttoned across his chest, this evidently with the idea of concealing the fact that he wore no shirt, an attempt which was not wholly successful. A pair of grey flannel trousers and boots out of which two toes peeped coyly completed the picture. Even Spike himself seemed to be aware that there were points in his appearance which would have distressed the editor of a men's fashion paper. "'Scuse these duds,' he said. "'My man's been and mislaid the trunk would be best suit in. This is me number two. "'Don't mention it, Spike,' said Jimmy. "'You look a perfect matinee idol. Have a drink?' Spike's eyes gleamed as he reached for the decanter. He took a seat. "'Cigar, Spike?' "'Sure. Thanks, boss.' Jimmy lighted his pipe. Spike, after a few genteel sips, threw off his restraint and finished the rest of his glass at a gulp. "'Try another,' suggested Jimmy. Spike's grin showed that the idea had been well received. Jimmy sat and smoked in silence for a while. He was thinking the thing over. He felt like a detective who has found a clue. At last he would be able to discover the name of the Lusitania girl. The discovery would not take him very far, certainly, but it would be something. Possibly Spike might even be able to fix the position of the house they had broken into that night. Spike was looking at Jimmy over his glass in silent admiration. This flat, which Jimmy had rented for a year, in the hope that the possession of a fixed abode might help to tie him down to one spot, was handsomely, even luxuriously furnished. To Spike, every chair and table in the room had a romance of its own, as having been purchased out of the proceeds of that new Asiatic bank robbery, or from the revenue accruing from the Duchess of Haven's jewels. He was dumb with reverence for one who could make burglary pay to this extent. In his own case, the profession had rarely provided anything more than bread and butter, and an occasional trip to Coney Island. Jimmy caught his eye and spoke. "'Well, Spike,' he said, "'curious that we should meet like this.' "'The limit,' agreed Spike. "'I can't imagine you three thousand miles from New York.' How do you know the cars still run both ways on Broadway?" A wistful look came into Spike's eyes. "'I've been dis side three months. I thought it was time I give old Lunnon a call. Things was getting too fierce in New York. The cops was laying for me. They didn't seem like as if they had any use for me. So I beat it.' "'Bad luck,' said Jimmy. "'Fierce,' agreed Spike. "'Say, Spike,' said Jimmy. Do you know, I spent a whole heap of time before I left New York looking for you. Gee, I wish you'd found me. Did yous want me to help you on some lay, boss? Is it a bank or jewels? Well, no, not that. Do you remember that night we broke into that house uptown, the police captain's house? Sure. What was his name? What, the cops? Why, McKechn, boss. McWhat? How do you spell it? Search me, said Spike simply. Say it again, fill your lungs, and enunciate slowly and clearly. 
be bell-like. Now. McKechn. Ah! And where was the house? Can you remember that? Spike's forehead wrinkled. It's gone, he said at last. It was somewheres up some street up to town. That's a lot of help, said Jimmy. Try again. It'll come back sometime, boss, sure. Then I'm going to keep an eye on you till it does. Just for the moment, you're the most important man in the world to me. Where are you living? Me? Why, into Pork. That's right. One of them swell detached benches with a southern exposure. Well, unless you prefer it, you needn't sleep in the park any more. You can pitch your moving tent with me. What? Here, boss? Unless we move. Me for this, said Spike, rolling luxuriously in his chair. You'll want some clothes, said Jimmy. We'll get those tomorrow. You're the sort of figure they can fit off the peg. You're not too tall, which is a good thing. Bad ting for me, boss. If I'd been taller, I'd have stood for being a cop and been buying a brownstone house on Fifth Avenue by this. It's the cops makes the big money in little old Manhattan. That's who it is. The man who knows, said Jimmy. Tell me more, Spike. I suppose a good many of the New York force do get rich by graft. Sure. Look at old man McKechn. I wish I could. Tell me about him, Spike. You seem to know him pretty well. Me? Sure. There wasn't a worse old grafter than him in the bunch. He was out for the dough all the time. But say, did you ever see his girl? What's that? said Jimmy sharply. I seen her once. Spike became almost lyrical in his enthusiasm. Gee, she was a boyd, a peach for fair. I'd have left me happy home for her. Molly was a Monica. She's... Jimmy was glaring at him. "'Cut it out!' he cried. "'What's that, boss?' said Spike. "'Cut it out!' said Jimmy savagely. Spike looked at him amazed. "'Sure,' he said, puzzled, but realizing that his words had not pleased the great man. Jimmy chewed the stem of his pipe irritably, while Spike, full of excellent intentions, sat on the edge of his chair, drawing sorrowfully at a cigar, and wondering what he had done to give offense. Boss, said Spike. Well? Boss, what's doing here? Put me next to the game. Is it the old lay? Banks and jewels from duchesses? You'll be able to let me sit in at the game, won't you? Jimmy laughed. I'd quite forgotten I hadn't told you about myself, Spike. I've retired. The horrid truth sank slowly into the other's mind. Say, what's that, boss? You're cutting it out? That's it, absolutely. Ain't you swiping no more jewels? Not me. Nor using the what's-its-name blowpipe? I have sold my oxyacetylene blowpipe, given away my anesthetics, and I'm going to turn over a new leaf and settle down as a respectable citizen." Spike gasped. His world had fallen about his ears. His excursion with Jimmy, the master cracksman in New York, had been the highest and proudest memory of his life, and now that they had met again in London he had looked forward to a long and prosperous partnership in crime. He was content that his own share in the partnership should be humble. It was enough for him to be connected, however humbly, with such a master. He had looked upon the richness of London, and he had said, with Blucher, "'What a city to loot!' And here was his idol, shattering the visions with a word. "'Have another drink, Spike,' said the lost leader sympathetically. "'It's a shock to you, I guess.' I taught, boss. I know, I know. These are life's tragedies. I'm very sorry for you, but it can't be helped. I've made my pile, so why continue?" Spike sat silent with a long face. Jimmy slapped him on the shoulder. "'Cheer up,' he said. How do you know that living honestly may not be splendid fun? Numbers of people do it, you know, and enjoy themselves tremendously. You must give it a trial, Spike. Me, boss? 
What? Me too? Sure. You're my link with... I don't want to have you remembering that address in the second month of a ten-year stretch at Dartmoor Prison. I'm going to look after you, Spike, my son, like a lynx. We'll go out together and see life. Brace up, Spike. Be cheerful. Grin. After a moment's reflection, the other grinned, albeit faintly. That's right, said Jimmy. We'll go into society, Spike, hand in hand. You'll be a terrific success in society. All you have to do is to look cheerful, brush your hair, and keep your hands off the spoons. For in the best circles, they invariably count them after the departure of the last guest. Sure, said Spike, as one who thoroughly understood this sensible precaution. And now, said Jimmy, we'll be turning in. Can you manage sleeping on the sofa one night? Some fellows would give their bed up to you. Not me, however. I'll have a bed made up for you tomorrow. Me? said Spike. Gee, I've been sleeping in the park all last week. This is to the good, boss. Chapter 11 At the Turn of the Road Next morning, when Jimmy, having sent Spike off to the tailor's, with instructions to get a haircut en route, was dealing with a combination of breakfast and luncheon at his flat, Lord Drever called. "'Fault I should find you in,' observed his lordship. "'Well, laddie, how goes it? Having breakfast? Eggs and bacon? Great Scott! I couldn't touch a thing!' The statement was borne out by his looks. The son of a hundred earls was pale and his eyes were markedly fish-like. "'A fellow I've got stopping with me, taking him down to Dreva with me to-day. Man I met at the club. Fellow named Hargate. Don't know if you know him? No? Well, he was still up when I got back last night, and we stayed up playing billiards. He's rotten at billiards, something frightful. I give him twenty, till five this morning. I feel fearfully cheap.' wouldn't have got up at all, only I'm due to catch the 2.15 down to Driva. It's the only good train." He dropped into a chair. "'Sorry you don't feel up to breakfast,' said Jimmy, helping himself to marmalade. "'I am generally to be found among those lining up when the gong goes. I've breakfasted on a glass of water and a bag of birdseed in my time. That sort of thing makes you ready to take whatever you can get. Seen the paper?' "'Thanks.' Jimmy finished his breakfast and lighted a pipe. Lord Drever laid down the paper. "'I say,' he said, "'what I came round about was this. What have you got on just now?' Jimmy had imagined that his friend had dropped in to return the five-pound note he had borrowed, but his lordship maintained a complete reserve on the subject. Jimmy was to discover later that this weakness of memory, where financial obligations were concerned, was a leading trait in Lord Drever's character. "'Today, you mean?' said Jimmy. "'Well, in the near future. What I mean is, why not put off that Japan trip you spoke about and come down to Drever with me?' Jimmy reflected. After all, Japan or Drever, it made very little difference and it would be interesting to see a place about which he had read so much. "'That's very good of you,' he said. "'You're sure it will be all right? It won't be upsetting your arrangements?' "'Not a bit. The more the merrier. Can you catch the two-fifteen? It's fearfully short notice.' "'Heavens, yes. I can pack in ten minutes. Thanks very much.' "'Good business. There'll be shooting and all that sort of rot. Oh, and by the way, are you any good at acting? I mean, there are going to be private theatricals of sorts. A man called Charteris insisted on getting them up. Always getting up theatricals. Rot, I call it. But you can't stop him. Do you do anything in that line? Put me down for what you like, from Emperor of Morocco to Confused Noise Without. I was on the stage once. I'm particularly good at shifting scenery. Good for you. Well, so long. Two-fifteen from Paddington, remember. I'll meet you there. I've got to go and see a fellow now. I'll look out for you." A sudden thought occurred to Jimmy. Spike! He had forgotten Spike for the moment. It was vital that the Bowery boy should not be lost sight of again. He was the one link with the little house somewhere beyond 150th Street. 
he could not leave the Bowery boy at the flat. A vision rose in his mind of Spike alone in London, with Savoy Mansions as a base for his operations. No, Spike must be transplanted to the country. But Jimmy could not seem to see Spike in the country. His boredom would probably be pathetic. But it was the only way. Lord Drever facilitated matters. "'By the way, Pitt,' he said, "'you've got a man of sorts, of course. One of those frightful fellows who forgot to pack your collars. Bring him along, of course.' "'Thanks,' said Jimmy. "'I will.' The matter had scarcely been settled when the door opened and revealed the subject of discussion. Wearing a broad grin of mingled pride and bashfulness, and looking very stiff and awkward in one of the brightest tweed suits ever seen off the stage, Spike stood for a moment in the doorway to let his appearance sink into the spectator, then advanced into the room. "'How do they strike you, boss?' he inquired genially, as Lord Drever gaped in astonishment at this bright being. "'Pretty near blind, Spike,' said Jimmy. "'What made you get those? We use electric light here.' Spike was full of news. "'Say, boss, that clothing store's a willy wonder, sure. The old mug what showed me round give me the frozen face when I came in foist. "'What's doin', he says. "'To the woods with you. Get the hook. But I hauls out the plunks you give me, and tells him how I'm here to get a dude suit, and gee, if he don't haul out suits by the mile. Give me a toist, it did, watching him. "'It's up to you,' says the mug. "'Choose something.' You pays the money, and we does the rest. So, I says, this is the one, and I put down the plunks, and here I am, boss. I noticed that, Spike, said Jimmy. I could see you in the dark. Don't you like the duds, boss? inquired Spike anxiously. They're great, said Jimmy. You'd make Solomon in all his glory look like a tramp cyclist. That's right, agreed Spike. Day's the limit and, apparently oblivious to the presence of Lord Drever, who had been watching him in blank silence since his entrance, the Bowery boy proceeded to execute a mysterious shuffling dance on the carpet. This was too much for the overwrought brain of his lordship. "'Good-bye, Pitt,' he said. "'I'm off. Got to see a man.' Jimmy saw his guest to the door. Outside, Lord Drever placed the palm of his right hand on his forehead. "'I say, Pitt,' he said. "'Hello?' "'Who the devil's that?' "'Who? Spike. Oh, that's my man.' "'Your man? Is he always like that? I mean, going on like a frightful music-hall comedian? Dancing, you know? And I say, what on earth language was he talking? I couldn't understand one word in ten. "'Oh, that's American, the Bowery variety.' "'Oh, well, I suppose it's all right if you can understand it. I can't. By gad!' he broke off with a chuckle. "'I'd give something to see him talking to old Saunders, our butler at home. He's got the manners of a duke.' "'Spike should revise those,' said Jimmy. "'What did you call him?' "'Spike. Rummy name, isn't it?' "'Oh, I don't know. Short for Algernon.' "'He seemed pretty chummy.' That's his independent bringing up. We're all like that in America. Well, so long, so long. On the bottom step, Lord Drever halted. I say, I've got it. Good for you. Uh, got what? Why, I knew I'd seen that chap's face somewhere before, only I couldn't place him. I've got him now. He's the Johnny who came into the shelter last night. Chap you gave a quid to. Spike's was one of those faces that, without being essentially beautiful, stamped themselves on the memory. "'You're quite right,' said Jimmy. "'I was wondering if you would recognize him. The fact is, he's a man I once employed over in New York, and when I came across him over here, he was so evidently wanting a bit of help that I took him on again. As a matter of fact, I needed somebody to look after my things, and Spike can do it as well as anybody else.' I see. Not bad my spotting him, was it? Well, I must be off. Good-bye. Two-fifteen at Paddington. Meet you there. Take a ticket for Drever if you're there before me. Eight. Good-bye. 
Jimmy returned to the dining-room. Spike, who was examining as much as he could of himself in the glass, turned round with his wanted grin. "'Say, who's the gazebo, boss? Ain't he the mug you was wit last night?' "'That's the man. We're going down with him to the country today, Spike, so be ready.' "'On your way, boss. What's that?' He has invited us to his country house, and we're going. What? Both of us? Yes. I told him you were my servant. I hope you aren't offended. Nit. What's there to be raw about, boss? That's all right. Well, we'd better be packing. We have to be at the station at two. Sure. And Spike? Yes, boss? Did you get any other clothes besides what you've got on? Nit. What do I want with more than one dude suit? I approve of your rugged simplicity, said Jimmy, but what you're wearing is a town suit. Excellent for the park or the Marchioness's Thursday crush, but essentially metropolitan. You must get something else for the country, something dark and quiet. I'll come and help you choose it now. Why, won't this do in the country? Not in your life, Spike. It would unsettle the rustic mind. They're fearfully particular about that sort of thing in England. "'Days to the bad,' said the baffled disciple of Beau Brummel, with deep discontent. "'And there's just one more thing, Spike. I know you'll excuse my mentioning it. When we're at Drever Castle, you will find yourself within reach of a good deal of silver and other things. Would it be too much to ask you to forget your professional instincts?' I mention this before in a general sort of way, but this is a particular case. "'Ain't I to get busy at all, then? queried Spike. "'Not so much as a salt-spoon,' said Jimmy firmly. "'Now we'll whistle a cab and go choose you some more clothes.' Accompanied by Spike, who came within an ace of looking almost respectable in new blue serge, small gents off the peg, Jimmy arrived at Paddington Station with a quarter of an hour to spare. Lord Drever appeared ten minutes later, accompanied by a man of about Jimmy's age. He was tall and thin, with cold eyes and tight, thin lips. His clothes fitted him in the way clothes do fit one man in a thousand. They were the best part of him. His general appearance gave one the idea that his meals did him little good, and his meditations rather less. He had practically no conversation. This was Lord Drever's friend, Hargate. Lord Drever made the introductions, but even as they shook hands, Jimmy had an impression that he had seen the man before. Yet where, or in what circumstances, he could not remember. Hargate appeared to have no recollection of him, so he did not mention the matter. A man who has led a wandering life often sees faces that come back to him later on, absolutely detached from their context. He might merely have passed Lord Drever's friend on the street, but Jimmy had an idea that the other had figured in some episode which, at the moment, had had an importance. What that episode was had escaped him. He dismissed the thing from his mind. It was not worth harrying his memory about. Judicious tipping secured the three a compartment to themselves. Hargate, having read the evening paper, went to sleep in the far corner. Jimmy and Lord Drever, who sat opposite each other, fell into a desultory conversation. After a while, Lord Drever's remarks took a somewhat intimate turn. Jimmy was one of those men whose manner invites confidences. His lordship began to unburden his soul of certain facts relating to the family. "'Have you ever met my Uncle Thomas?' he inquired. "'You know Blunt stores? Well, he's Blunt. It's a company now, but he still runs it. He married my aunt. You'll meet him at Driva.' Jimmy said he would be delighted. "'I bet you won't,' said the last of the Drevers, with candor. He's a frightful man, the limit, always fussing round like a hen. Gives me a fearful time, I can tell you. Look here, I don't mind telling you, we're pals. He's dead set on my marrying a rich girl. Well, that sounds all right. There are worse hobbies. Any particular rich girl? There's always one, 
He sicks me on to one after another. Quite nice girls, you know, some of them. Only, I want to marry somebody else. That girl you saw me with at the Savoy. Why don't you tell your uncle? He'd have a fit. She hasn't a penny, nor have I, except what I get from him. Of course, this is strictly between ourselves. Of course. I know everybody thinks there's money attached to the title, but there isn't, not a penny. When my Aunt Julia married Sir Thomas, the whole frightful show was pretty well in pawn. So you see how it is." "'Ever think of work?' asked Jimmy. "'Work!' said Lord Drever, reflectively. "'Well, you know, I shouldn't mind work, only I'm dashed if I can see what I could do. I shouldn't know how. Nowadays you want a fearful specialized education and so on. Tell you what, though, I shouldn't mind the diplomatic service. One of these days I shall have a dash at asking my uncle to put up the money. I believe I shouldn't be half bad at that. I'm rather a quick sort of chap at times, you know. Lots of fellows have said so." He cleared his throat modestly and proceeded. "'It isn't only my Uncle Thomas,' he said. "'There's Aunt Julia, too. She's about as much the limit as he is. I remember, when I was a kid, she was always sitting on me. She does still. Wait till you see her, sort of woman who makes you feel that your hands are the color of tomatoes and the size of legs of mutton, if you know what I mean. And talks as if she were biting at you. Frightful." Having unburdened himself of these criticisms, Lord Drever yawned, leaned back, and was presently asleep. It was about an hour later that the train, which had been taking itself less seriously for some time, stopping at stations of quite minor importance and generally showing a tendency to dawdle, halted again. A board with the legend Drever in large letters showed that they had reached their destination. The station-master informed Lord Drever that her ladyship had come to meet the train in the motor-car and was now waiting in the road outside. Lord Drever's jaw fell. "'Oh, Lord!' he said. "'She's probably motored in to get the afternoon letters. That means she's come in the runabout, and there's only room for two of us in that. I forgot to telegraph that you were coming, Pitt. I only wired about Hargate. Dash it! I shall have to walk.' His fears proved correct. The car at the station door was small. It was obviously designed to seat four only. Lord Drever introduced Hargate and Jimmy to the statuesque lady in the tonneau, and then there was an awkward silence. At this point Spike came up, chuckling amiably, with a magazine in his hand. "'Gee!' said Spike. "'Say, boss, the mug what wrote this piece must have been living out in the woods. Say, there's a gazebo what wants to swipe the heroine's jewels what's locked in a drawer. So this mug, what do you think he does?' Spike laughed shortly, in professional scorn. "'Why, is this gentleman a friend of yours, Spenny?' inquired Lady Julia politely, eyeing the red-haired speaker coldly. "'It's—' Spenny looked appealingly at Jimmy. "'It's my man,' said Jimmy. "'Spike,' he added in an undertone, "'to the woods. Chase yourself. Fade away.' "'Sure,' said the abashed Spike. "'That's right. It ain't up to me to come button in. "'Sorry, boss. Sorry, gents. Sorry, Lloydy. Me for the tall grass.' "'There's a luggage-cart of sorts,' said Lord Drever, pointing. "'Sure,' said Spike, affably. He trotted away. "'Jump in, Pitt,' said Lord Drever. "'I'm going to walk.' "'No, I'll walk,' said Jimmy. "'I'd rather.' I want a bit of exercise. Which way do I go?" "'Frightfully good of you, old chap,' said Lord Drever. "'Sure you don't mind? I do bar walking. Right-o, you keep straight on.' He sat down in the tonneau by his aunt's side. The last Jimmy saw was a hasty vision of him engaged in earnest conversation with Lady Julia. He did not seem to be enjoying himself. 
Nobody is at his best in conversation with a lady whom he knows to be possessed of a firm belief in the weakness of his intellect. A prolonged conversation with Lady Julia always made Lord Drever feel as if he were being tied into knots. Jimmy watched them out of sight and started to follow at a leisurely pace. It certainly was an ideal afternoon for a country walk. The sun was just hesitating whether to treat the time as afternoon or evening. Eventually it decided that it was evening, and moderated its beams. After London the country was deliciously fresh and cool. Jimmy felt an unwanted content. It seemed to him just then that the only thing worth doing in the world was to settle down somewhere with three acres and a cow and become pastoral. There was a marked lack of traffic on the road. Once he met a cart, and once a flock of sheep with a friendly dog. Sometimes a rabbit would dash out into the road, stop to listen, and dart into the opposite hedge, all hind legs and white scut. But except for these, he was alone in the world. And gradually there began to be borne in upon him the conviction that he had lost his way. It is difficult to judge distance when one is walking but it certainly seemed to Jimmy that he must have covered five miles by this time. He must have mistaken the way. He had doubtless come straight. He could not have come straighter. On the other hand, it would be quite in keeping with the cheap substitute which served the Earl of Drever in place of a mind that he should have forgotten to mention some important turning. Jimmy sat down by the roadside. As he sat, there came to him from down the road the sound of a horse's feet, trotting. He got up. Here was somebody at last who would direct him. The sound came nearer. The horse turned the corner, and Jimmy saw with surprise that it bore no rider. "'Hello,' he said. "'Accident?' And, by Jove, a side-saddle. The curious part of it was that the horse appeared in no way a wild horse. It gave the impression of being out for a little trot on its own account, a sort of equine constitutional. Jimmy stopped the horse and led it back the way it had come. As he turned the bend in the road, he saw a girl in a riding habit running toward him. She stopped running when she caught sight of him and slowed down to a walk. "'Thank you ever so much,' she said, taking the reins from him. "'Dandy, you naughty old thing!' I got off to pick up my crop, and he ran away." Jimmy looked at her flushed, smiling face and stood staring. It was Molly McEckern. CHAPTER Twelve, MAKING A START Self-possession was one of Jimmy's leading characteristics, but for the moment he found himself speechless. This girl had been occupying his thoughts for so long that, in his mind, he had grown very intimate with her. It was something of a shock to come suddenly out of his dreams and face the fact that she was in reality practically a stranger. He felt as one might with a friend whose memory has been wiped out. It went against the grain to have to begin again from the beginning after all the time they had been together a curious constraint fell upon him. "'Why, how do you do, Mr. Pitt?' she said, holding out her hand. Jimmy began to feel better. It was something that she remembered his name. "'It's like meeting somebody out of a dream,' said Molly. "'I have sometimes wondered if you were real. Everything that happened that night was so like a dream.' Jimmy found his tongue. "'You haven't altered,' he said. You look just the same. Well, she laughed, after all, it's not so long ago, is it? He was conscious of a dull hurt. To him it had seemed years. But he was nothing to her, just an acquaintance, one of a hundred. But what more, he asked himself, could he have expected? And with the thought came consolation. The painful sense of having lost ground left him he saw that he had been allowing things to get out of proportion. He had not lost ground, he had gained it. He had met her again, and she remembered him. What more had he any right to ask? "'I've crammed a good deal into the time,' he explained. "'I've been traveling about a bit since we met.' 
Do you live in Shropshire?' asked Molly. "'No, I'm on a visit. At least I'm supposed to be. But I've lost the way to the place, and I'm beginning to doubt if I shall ever get there. I was told to go straight on. I've gone straight on, and here I am, lost in the snow. Do you happen to know whereabouts Drever Castle is?' She laughed. "'Why,' she said, "'I'm staying at Drever Castle myself.' "'What?' "'So the first person you meet turns out to be an experienced guide. You're lucky, Mr. Pitt.' "'You're right,' said Jimmy slowly. "'I am.' "'Did you come down with Lord Drever? He passed me in the car just as I was starting out. He was with another man and Lady Julia Blunt. Surely he didn't make you walk.' "'I offered to walk. Somebody had to. Apparently he had forgotten to let them know he was bringing me.' "'And then he misdirected you. He's very casual, I'm afraid.' "'Inclined that way, perhaps.' "'Have you known Lord Drever long?' "'Since a quarter past twelve last night.' "'Last night?' "'We met at the Savoy, and later on the embankment. We looked at the river together, and told each other painful stories of our lives, and this morning he called and invited me down here.' Molly looked at him with frank amusement. "'You must be a very restless sort of person,' she said. You seem to do a great deal of moving about." "'I do,' said Jimmy. "'I can't keep still. I've got the go fever, like that man in Kipling's book.' "'But he was in love.' "'Yes,' said Jimmy. "'He was. That's the bacillus, you know.' She shot a quick glance at him. He became suddenly interesting to her. She was at the age of dreams and speculations. From being merely an ordinary young man with rather more ease of manner than the majority of the young men she had met, he developed in an instant into something worthy of closer attention. He took on a certain mystery and romance. She wondered what sort of girl it was that he loved. Examining him in the light of this new discovery, she found him attractive. Something seemed to have happened to put her in sympathy with him. She noticed for the first time a latent forcefulness behind the pleasantness of his manner. His self-possession was the self-possession of the man who has been tried and has found himself. At the bottom of her consciousness, too, there was a faint stirring of some emotion, which she could not analyze, but unlike pain. It was vaguely reminiscent of the agony of loneliness which she had experienced as a small child, on the rare occasions when her father had been busy and distrait, and had shown her by his manner that she was outside his thoughts. This was but a pale suggestion of that misery. Nevertheless, there was a resemblance. It was a rather desolate, shut-out sensation, half-resentful. It was gone in a moment. But it had been there. It had passed over her heart as the shadow of a cloud moves across a meadow in the summertime. For some moments she stood without speaking. Jimmy did not break the silence. He was looking at her with an appeal in his eyes. Why could she not understand? She must understand. But the eyes that met his were those of a child. As they stood there, the horse, which had been cropping in a perfunctory manner at the short grass by the roadside, raised its head and neighed impatiently. There was something so human about the performance that Jimmy and the girl laughed simultaneously. The utter materialism of the neigh broke the spell. It was a noisy demand for food. "'Poor Dandy,' said Molly. "'He knows he's near home, and he knows it's his dinner-time.' Are we near the castle, then?" "'It's a long way round by the road, but we can cut across the fields. Aren't these English fields and hedges just perfect? I love them. Of course, I loved America, but—' "'Have you left New York long?' asked Jimmy. "'We came over here about a month after you were at our house.' "'You didn't spend much time there, then?' Father had just made a good deal of money in Wall Street. He must have been making it when I was on the Lusitania. He wanted to leave New York, 
So we didn't wait. We were in London all the winter. Then we went over to Paris. It was there we met Sir Thomas Blunt and Lady Julia. Have you met them? They are Lord Drever's uncle and aunt. I've met Lady Julia. Did you like her? Jimmy hesitated. Well, you see, I know, she's your hostess, but you haven't started your visit yet. So you've just got time to say what you really think of her before you have to pretend she's perfect. Well, I detest her, said Molly crisply. I think she's hard and hateful. Well, I can't say she struck me as a sort of female cheerable brother. Lord Drever introduced me to her at the station. She seemed to bear it pluckily, but with some difficulty. She's hateful, repeated Molly. So is he, Sir Thomas, I mean. He's one of those fussy, bullying little men. They both bully poor Lord Drever till I wonder he doesn't rebel. They treat him like a schoolboy. It makes me wild. It's such a shame. He's so nice and good-natured. I am so sorry for him." Jimmy listened to this outburst with mixed feelings. It was sweet of her to be so sympathetic, but was it merely sympathy? There had been a ring in her voice and a flush on her cheek that had suggested to Jimmy's sensitive mind a personal interest in the downtrodden peer. Reason told him that it was foolish to be jealous of Lord Drever, a good fellow, of course, but not to be taken seriously. The primitive man in him, on the other hand, made him hate all Molly's male friends with an unreasoning hatred. Not that he hated Lord Drever. He liked him. But he doubted if he could go on liking him for long if Molly were to continue in this sympathetic strain. His affection for the absent one was not put to the test. Molly's next remark had to do with Sir Thomas. "'The worst of it is,' she said, Father and Sir Thomas are such friends. In Paris they were always together. Father did him a very good turn. How was that? It was one afternoon just after we arrived. A man got into Lady Julia's room while we were all out except Father. Father saw him go into the room and suspected something was wrong, and went in after him. The man was trying to steal Lady Julia's jewels. He had opened the box where they were kept, and was actually holding her rope of diamonds in his hand when father found him. It's the most magnificent thing I ever saw. Sir Thomas told father he gave a hundred thousand dollars for it." "'But surely,' said Jimmy, "'hadn't the management of the hotel a safe for valuables?' "'Of course they had. But you don't know Sir Thomas. He wasn't going to trust any hotel safe.' He's the sort of man who insists on doing everything his own way, and who always imagines he can do things better himself than anyone else can do them for him. He had had this special box made, and would never keep the diamonds anywhere else. Naturally, the chief opened it in a minute. A clever thief would have no difficulty with a thing like that. What happened? Oh, the man saw father and dropped the jewels and ran off down the corridor. Father chased him a little way, but of course it was no good. So he went back and shouted and rang every bell he could see and gave the alarm. But the man was never found. Still, he left the diamonds. That was the great thing after all. You must look at them tonight at dinner. They really are wonderful. Are you a judge of precious stones at all? I am, rather, said Jimmy. In fact, a jeweler I once knew told me I had a natural gift in that direction. And so, of course, Sir Thomas was pretty grateful to your father. He simply gushed. He couldn't do enough for him. You see, if the diamonds had been stolen, I'm sure Lady Julia would have made Sir Thomas buy her another rope just as good. He's terrified of her, I'm certain. He tries not to show it, but he is and besides having to pay another hundred thousand dollars, he would have never heard the last of it. It would have ruined his reputation for being infallible and doing everything better than anybody else. But didn't the mere fact that the thief got the jewels and was only stopped by a fluke from getting away with them do that? Molly bubbled with laughter. She never knew. 
Sir Thomas got back to the hotel an hour before she did. I've never seen such a busy hour. He had the manager up, harangued him, and swore him to secrecy, which the poor manager was only too glad to agree to, because it wouldn't have done the hotel any good to have it known. And the manager harangued the servants, and the servants harangued one another, and everybody talked at the same time. And father and I promised not to tell a soul. So Lady Julia doesn't know a word about it to this day. And I don't see why she ever should, though one of these days I've a good mind to tell Lord Drever. Think what a hold he would have over them. They'd never be able to bully him again." "'I shouldn't,' said Jimmy, trying to keep a touch of coldness out of his voice. This championship of Lord Drever, however sweet and admirable, was a little distressing. She looked up quickly. "'You don't think I really meant to, do you?' "'No, no,' said Jimmy, hastily. "'Of course not.' "'Well, I should think so,' said Molly indignantly. "'After I promised not to tell a soul about it.' Jimmy chuckled. "'It's nothing,' he said, in answer to her look of inquiry. "'You laughed at something.' "'Well,' said Jimmy, apologetically, "'it's only—it's nothing, really.' Only what I mean is, you have just told one soul a good deal about it, haven't you?" Molly turned pink. Then she smiled. "'I don't know how I came to do it,' she declared. It just rushed out of its own accord. I suppose it is because I know I can trust you." Jimmy flushed with pleasure. He turned to her and half halted, but she continued to walk on. You can, he said, but how do you know you can? She seemed surprised. Why? she said. She stopped for a moment, then went on hurriedly with a touch of embarrassment. Why, how absurd! Of course I know. Can't you read faces? I can. Look, she said, pointing. Now you can see the castle. How do you like it? They reached a point where the field sloped sharply downward. A few hundred yards away, backed by woods, stood the gray mass of stone which had proved such a killjoy of old to the Welsh sportsmen during the pheasant season. Even now it had a certain air of defiance. The setting sun lighted the waters of the lake. No figures were to be seen moving in the grounds. The place resembled a palace of sleep. Well, said Molly. It's wonderful, isn't it? I'm so glad it strikes you like that. I always feel as if I had invented everything round here. It hurts if people don't appreciate it." They went down the hill. "'By the way,' said Jimmy, "'are you acting in these theatricals they are getting up?' "'Yes. Are you the other man they were going to get? That's why Lord Drever went up to London, to see if he couldn't find somebody.' The man who was going to play one of the parts had to go back to London on business. "'Poor brute,' said Jimmy. It seemed to him at this moment that there was only one place in the world where a man might be even reasonably happy. "'What sort of part is it? Lord Drever said I should be wanted to act. What do I do?' "'If you are Lord Herbert, which is the part they wanted a man for, you talk to me most of the time.' Jimmy decided that the piece had been well cast. The dressing-gong sounded just as they entered the hall. From a door on the left there emerged two men, a big man and a little one, in friendly conversation. The big man's back struck Jimmy as familiar. "'Oh, father!' Molly called, and Jimmy knew where he had seen the back before. The two men stopped. "'Sir Thomas,' said Molly, "'this is Mr. Pitt.' The little man gave Jimmy a rapid glance, possibly with the object of detecting his more immediately obvious criminal points, then, as if satisfied as to his honesty, became genial. "'I'm very glad to meet you, Mr. Pitt, very glad,' he said. "'We have been expecting you for some time.' Jimmy explained that he had lost his way. "'Exactly. It was ridiculous that you should be compelled to walk, perfectly ridiculous.' It was grossly careless of my nephew not to let us know that you were coming. 
My wife told him so in the car." "'I bet she did,' said Jimmy to himself. "'Really,' he said aloud, by way of lending a helping hand to a friend in trouble, "'I preferred to walk. I have not been on a country road since I landed in England.' He turned to the big man and held out his hand. "'I don't suppose you remember me, Mr. McEachern. We met in New York.' "'You remember the night Mr. Pitt scared away our burglar, father,' said Molly. Mr. McEachern was momentarily silent. On his native asphalt there are few situations capable of throwing the New York policeman off his balance. In that favored clime savoir-faire is represented by a shrewd blow of the fist, and a masterful stroke with the truncheon amounts to a satisfactory repartee. Thus shall you never take the policeman of Manhattan without his answer.' In other surroundings Mr. McEachern would have known how to deal with the young man whom, with such good reason, he believed to be an expert criminal. But another plan of action was needed here. First and foremost, of all the hints on etiquette that he had imbibed since he entered this more reposeful life, came the maxim, never make a scene. Scenes, he had gathered, were of all things what polite society most resolutely abhorred. The natural man in him must be bound in chains. The sturdy blow must give way to the honeyed word. A cold, really, was the most vigorous retort that the best circles would countenance. It had cost Mr. McEachern some pains to learn this lesson, but he had done it. He shook hands and gruffly acknowledged the acquaintanceship. "'Really, really,' chirped Sir Thomas amiably. So, you find yourself among old friends, Mr. Pitt?" "'Old friends,' echoed Jimmy, painfully conscious of the ex-policeman's eyes, which were boring holes in him. "'Excellent, excellent. Let me take you to your room. It is just opposite my own. This way.' In his younger days Sir Thomas had been a floor-walker of no mean caliber. A touch of the professional still lingered in his brisk movements. He preceded Jimmy upstairs with the unstrained suavity that could be learned in no other school. They parted from Mr. McEachern on the first landing, but Jimmy could still feel those eyes. The policeman's stare had been of the sort that turns corners, goes upstairs, and pierces walls. End of Part 4